we look at hyper-successful people and we say that it's their ego that drove them to do it, it's often the ego that keeps people in smaller businesses. I actually think that this is one of the most underrated cheat codes in business because people think that building an audience is a really hard thing. And so I think the concept of FU money is just getting out of that game and figuring out what your game is. And in some ways it's harder. And that problem doesn't get solved just because you exited a business necessarily. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, everybody, we just finished this incredible Q&A episode. Thank you for your cues. Lots of questions that we didn't even believe were real questions. They're all real questions. <laughs> some Got cool blindsided, ones. man. Just completely blindsided. We talked about some of the n- most common ways six-figure businesses get hung up from becoming seven-figure businesses. We talked about cheat codes for entrepreneurs and how the community space has changed and much more. Stick around for this one. It was a fun one. Very exciting times here at the podcast. We opened up the mailbags. You guys know our email addresses is Dan and Ian at thisdomain.com. Thank goodness for this mailbag, by the way, because at my house, I have never received like a that. piece of mail that I actually want to open. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, the concept of a mailbag is literally like you would send mail to the people like the Backstreet Boys. You'd be like, you know what? I'm going to sit down. Join the fan and club. I'm going to pen a letter to my favorite boy. And maybe Nick's handler is going to send me back a, a thank you. A thank yeah, you. or a, a signed photograph, perhaps. <laughs> or I'm going to send away uh, 50 cents in an envelope when I was a kid. And I'm going to get some stickers from like the back uh, of the magazine. Or I'm going to get some dollar CDs from Columbia yeah. or whatever it was. Like good things mm-hmm. used to come in the mail. And then it stopped. Direct mail. And then we started the show, and then good things started to happen in the mail again. That's right. (laughs) So here we go. Here's the first question. From all your years of experience watching startups, what are the top ways smaller six-figure businesses limit themselves from scaling into seven-figure DC Black potential having businesses? That was the way it was written. Limit themselves from scaling into seven-figure potential businesses. All right. Ian, I'm so glad this question was asked because I've been cooking up a little framework. I've been going on a personal hajj, which is represented by this question the past two or three years. Because as you know, we were in this situation. We were running a six-figure business. We wanted to make it a multi-seven-figure business. We wanted to find the answers in the universe. So we started to seek them out. And I think we found some. We've also worked with tons of other founders on the same journey. I'm trying to give a little taster of what I come up with here. But first, I think it's worth talking about why. Why? Because in the early days, you'd say, look, I'm making 10 grand a month from my business. It's relatively simple. I got a decent team in place or whatever. I can travel. Why build myself a headache? I got a a couple of reasons for that. The first is that over the years, I've seen 
that the mid six figure business is just not that durable. All things being equal, what creates durability in a business is size. And thinking long term, I think it's better to build a durable asset. Number two, I'm not convinced that it's harder to grow a multi seven figure business than it is to grow a six figure business. Number three, your key teammates aren't going to be arbitrage Andes, right? If you want to bring in the big guns, you're going to need some margin, some real dollars to pay people that are professionals and expert in their industry. I think that's a lot more fun. In fact, that was one of our key motivations, Ian, a dream that I think has been realized. Look at who we're surrounded at the table with now, people that are awesome to work with. You know, one of the complaints that I've heard a lot over the years and maybe even made myself is like, I don't like managing teams, you know? And it's like, well, maybe you just get rid of the managing part. Maybe you had a, no problems with managing whatsoever. You just had problems with your team. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> not three people. Yeah. And if you have a mid six figure business, you might be stretching. You might not have enough margin. You might be flying to some faraway place to try and find somebody that fits on that P&L and makes sense. And that might not be the best person for the job. And I think that's a big argument for growing a bigger business is to get the best person for the job in the seat. The final reason is most of the assets we're building aren't going to have some big strategic exit. They're probably going to have an EBITDA exit, which means you're going to sell on a multiple of your cash flow. Well, the multiple of your cash flow at mid six figures looks like forwarding you a few years of salary. The multiple of your cash flow in a seven or multi seven figure business or eight figure business could look like a retirement. So these are sort of my four key reasons why I think if you're in the game anyway, you might as well go for a larger business. I really agree, man. It's not clear that it's harder to build a seven figure business than a six figure business. And we've had both. In fact, every business starts as a six figure business even five and four before that. That's right. Um, But it's not clear that it's any harder. In fact, I kind of learned this lesson sitting next to an eight-figure founder and watching my day look very much like his day and thinking, (laughs) why don't I have an eight-figure business? Wait, we're both taking lunch right now? Exactly. time for you too? I thought eight-figure dudes, you had to eat salad at the desk. You'd eat a healthy salad at the desk. You run an eight-figure business, you can't be going to get a burger at lunch. That's that's what us six-figure founders do. (laughs) But what I noticed about the difference between mine and his day was, uh, number one, he was interacting with professionals. So getting on a lot of meetings. And then also like his counterparts were professionals. They, a lot of times they knew more than he did in the business. So he was afforded that, quote, luxury because he had built enough margin into his product and into his business that he could hire these people. And number two, just on that point, where I said margin, I think this is actually a big reason why people don't get to seven-figure businesses because they don't build margin into their product early on. And so it's one of these things like, I saw it in e-commerce all the time back in the day. It's like, yeah, I'm selling my widget for like 2X. I'm like, dude, that's not going to work. You're not, when this thing scales up and you start selling a lot and you start to get aggressive in your marketing and whatnot, like you're just going to run out of money. So you got to have a profitable product so you can be able to afford all this stuff. And that's just part of becoming a seven-figure business is thinking through these problems strategically and aligning yourself with your company. So we both agree it's desirable, but how do you get there and what snags people up? That's the question. What are the top ways smaller business owners can limit themselves in this ambition? We've got a list 
And they basically cover three key areas, Ian. And these areas tend to be sequential. Okay, so the first area is in leadership. The second area is in strategy. And the third area is in operations. So why sequential? Because although leadership is always important in a business, in the early days, it's really critically important that the person leading the company really leads the company. And you can get snagged up on a lot of things like your skills and experience. You might not have enough skills and experience. I actually see this a lot, that you founders simply might not be able to acquire the skills and experience fast enough to have success in the project they're embarking on. And there's a lot of ways to deal with that. It's not an end game, right? We have to continue to learn and to improve. You might need to go back and get a job. You might need to surround yourself with the coach. Sometimes you can get hung up on issues of motivation and energy. That might be something around you need to make a change in life. You might need to go do some therapy or figure out maybe why don't you like what you're doing? What's the block? If you don't have enough motivation or energy, and I put it under the leadership category because it's really just about the individual. You're getting hung up at the individual level. Is that strange to call it leadership, actually? I don't think so. And it's uh, this is probably like one of the more difficult things to overcome because you have to look at yourself and figure out like what's wrong. And you know, mm-hmm. that's really difficult to do. It's like really easy to see like why a campaign isn't working or like why a product isn't selling, perhaps, you know, but to like have to look at yourself and be like, well, I'm actually the reason why this isn't working out. That's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah. Well, it also can be ambition. One of the number one reasons when six-figure founders are just not heading to seven figures is simply they don't want to, or that's what they're reporting. I don't want to grow my business, which is totally fine. And the final piece of this, Ian, is delegation. Just a simple idea like that proto-leadership of being able to inspire the first few people to join your mission and then to actually effectively delegate to them. I put that all under the kind of same leadership, individual, like the problem is with you, the founder. Skills, experience, motivation, delegation. That's the first group. We're going to call it leadership. And it tends to be the thing that's relevant when you're getting the first few clients, the first few customers, the first few years. One of the crazy things about this, hopefully you have somebody close to you that knows you well. That's not just like a friend, but somebody that's invested in your business in some way. Like maybe you're in a mastermind together or something like that. Generally speaking, and this is a scary thing to do, but you can ask them, do you think I'm well-equipped to run this business? Do you think that I am properly delegating? Do you think that I'm properly motivated, right? That's a very scary question to ask somebody, but a lot of times people kind of on the edge of your business and your life can tell these things for you if you ask them. Yeah. In the same way we look at hyper-successful people and we say that it's their ego that drove them to do it, it's often the ego that keeps people in smaller businesses. I think that's kind of what you're pointing to, which is it's the knife cuts two ways, as it often does. If you have a big ego and you're not willing to take in information, but that ego isn't yet sufficient to build some kind of crazy success, it could actually be your problem. And I bring it up because it's a common one. So there you go. So the first one is comes under this category of leadership or generally having poor personal habits. Now, as you start to progress and the business starts to get motivation, there's a second category of problems, which I'll call strategic. 
And the most common strategic problem that six-figure founders face is not building a reliable and repeatable source of new customers. So a typical way this would play out is that you use conferences or personal relationships as a way to, to like move the flywheel manually. So man, if I go to a conference, I know I can get a contract. Okay, yeah. so then you fly to the next conference and you get another contract. And by the time you fly to the seventh contract, your first two contracts have ended and they haven't renewed yet. And we haven't yet found a way in the business to build enough margin and to have enough pricing power to run meaningful campaigns that drive regular new customers. And this is a tricky one because now we're starting to talk about things like, are there benefits to your customers when other customers sign up? Because that would be, say, like a network effect. Is there like some kind of strategic element in your business that as it starts to get momentum, it becomes a better business for customers to be involved in? And a lot of businesses simply never answer this question. They always, every single deal, every single product, every single contract is a price war. The margins continue to get depleted. And so it's like we're going to continue to hire more affordable team members. Our operation is going to continue to get worse than it was when it was just me and three people delivering. And we're never actually going to turn this thing into a flywheel because we haven't figured out this strategy, specifically how we're going to get new clients and how those new clients are going to make the whole system work better. So we talked about, number one, having poor personal habits. Number two, not having reliable and repeatable source of new customers. By the way, pretty breezy through that one. <laughs> Put a little stick in that one with a reminder that this is like full episode territory because these strategic questions are very complicated, but there are some resources that we can dig into and revisit if the audience is interested in those strategic questions. Finally, the third type of thing that holds people back from getting to that seven-figure level is something we'll call poor operational hygiene or just operations. And so typically, as your business figures out the strategy element, you're finding a way to get repeatable new clients. People are coming in the door. Now you need to take actions on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that build your brand and that build your operational power. And if those things degrade and fall off and you can't maintain margin and build confidence in the marketplace, then the business will also stall out. So a lot of things to consider here, but this is the part where a lot of people get hung up. You know, delegation is one thing. It's one thing to have an EA and say, book me my next flight to uh, X festival on the West Coast. It's a whole nother thing to have 15 people working for you to have to put client expectations and brand touches into people that you didn't maybe haven't met yet and you're working on razor thin margins or whatever and things tend to devolve here at the operational level as well. And it's not uncommon to see founders that are like good at one or the other. So you see founders like a lot of times optimizing way too much for their operations early on before they have sales. So it's like they got it buttoned up, the delivery of the product's amazing. And then you turn around and there's like no one at the door. It's like, yeah. wait, now I got to find somebody to do all this good work for. And so it's often the case that, um, you know, we're good at one or the other or we're like average at both of them. Right. So yeah. part of the beauty of growing to seven figures is that you can start to hire people like operations managers or yeah. you can start to hire 
marketing and sales managers. And then, and we talk about this a lot, you can kind of go back to being the entrepreneur and doing the only thing that you can do, which is have these interesting ideas and ways to like jumpstart the business. Because there's all these cliffs that happen. You know, we're just talking about six and seven figures. In fact, there's like all these other cliffs that happen in between. Right. Right. That you have to overcome and you have to come in as the entrepreneur. Probably nobody you hire for the first 25 to 35 people is going to be able to do that for you in terms of like move the business in a meaningful way. That's your job. Your job is the next million dollars. Right. That's your job. Have you ever seen one of these assessments, like personality assessments? A lot of listeners take something called the Colby assessment or whatever, where you get these ratings on each, like whether you're a quick start or an implementer, a fact finder, stuff like that. I suspect you could do something similar for leadership, strategy, and operations. And if you were like an eight or above in any one of the three, that might be sufficient to not have sorted out the other ones. So this works systemically too, whereas say you're a nine out of 10 in leadership and there's like something special about what you are bringing to the table. It could be a nexus of skills, like design plus being able to speak about it. You think about like Simon Sinek. He used to run an agency, but he wrote this book. It starts with the why. And the moment you see that guy on stage, you're like, this Simon Sinek guy, he's special, right? Like he's got a special nexus of skill sets, of communication, of design language, of ability to structure thoughts. Well, he's going to start a seven-figure business that don't matter about strategy and it don't matter about operations. Because pretty much if he stays out of his own way, whatever he's doing is going to get to seven figures. And I think that that's another way to look at this system, which is you can all in on one of the three and that can be sufficient and you might be able to get yourself enough margin there where then you can get professionals in charge of the weak spots. Yeah. So it could be used as a way to assess your business as well. Maybe we should come up with an assessment and charge $55 for it. That's what Colbe does. And guess what their margins are? Big. 100%. There's like a machine giving you the assessment. There's only 36 questions. That's ridiculous. $55. We should do the same thing. And guess what I'm going to do now? Probably buy more things from Colbe. Why can they do that? Why? Because they have brand power. They have brand power. I want to go to somebody else and say, I got assessed by Colbe, not by Dolbe. You don't want to be the guy... You're cheaped out. You got the $25 assessment. (laughs) No one's going to trust it. (laughs) All right, let's move on to the next questions. If you guys could create a cheat code for bootstrappers, what would it be and how could they activate it? A cheat code. Hmm. For those of you who don't know, a cheat code is like when you play a game console and you could unlock unlimited or specific powers by clicking the right combination of buttons and controller directional thingies. I haven't played games in a long time. I don't know if this still exists out there. Certain things embedded in language that you forget about their origins. So if yeah. you ever <laughs> played like Contra or Zelda, uh, this is where the, the cheat code comes from. So my cheat code would be creating micro-influence. Micro-influence. So one of the strategy assessment questions on my version of the Dolbe would be this. Can you move the market? One of the most frustrating things for founders is when they can't do in the market what they want to do. They want to make a sale. They want to have a $25,000 a month. 
but they can't get there. But what do they do? Sit on their hands, go for an angry walk around the block, punch the wall. They can't move the market. Despite what they've done, they can't get to $25,000 that month. It's frustrating as shit. We've all been there. How do you solve it? By creating micro-influence, by being able to manipulate the market. That's why people say running a small business is better than investing in stocks because, hey, you can't move the market, but you can move your own market. How do you do it? You build micro-influence. I actually think that this is one of the most underrated cheat codes in business because people think that building an audience is a really hard thing. And I'm not so sure that it is, number one. I think there's endless opportunities out there for people who take this publishing first approach as a way to build a relationship with an audience. Here's an example of a micro audience. When you think of influence and moving the market, you have to think about a few different parts of the equation. Number one, how many people are listening to you? Number two, what are their buying behaviors and how valuable are those buying behaviors? Number three, how do they see and or esteem you? And then maybe finally put all those things together in a little math equation. I'm not so good at math. Put them in a, use a your box, metaphor. A black yeah. box. Yeah. Put it in a black box. Put it in a soup Shake bowl it up. and simmer it. Yeah. I think you see where I'm getting at here, Ian, which is if you change those variables, you can pretty quickly get to a small micro audience that you can influence. How about this? What if I started a Twitter account or newsletter specifically for people in Austin, Texas, buying million-dollar-plus commercial and residential properties. Subscribed. Subscribed. Well, how many people need to read that, pay attention to that on a weekly basis for that to move the needle for my real estate services business? Write that newsletter to two people. I write it to 20. Yeah. I write it to 200. And then once you get some momentum, hey, let's do Houston too. Right. Let's do Dallas too. Yeah, it's interesting, the idea of it being micro, right? Because most of us, we sit around and we think like, okay, I've got to have a large audience. I got to sell a lot of product. This has got to be a big business. It always starts with one, one or two. And the question is, can you start with a strategy that wins at one or two people? Yes, 100%. That's the question. Can it win at one or two people? Because that's moving the market. That's flying the whole way to the conference and saying, I cut two deals. Well, you can do it from your desk <laughs> and you can get to $25,000 that month if you can move the market. That's the definition of moving the market. That's my first cheat code. Here's a second one. I think just joining a micro cabal sounds cooler than it is. Micro cabal, a micro mafia, like the PayPal mafia, people who are all supporting each other and getting to $25,000 a month or $250,000 a month, whatever it is. Three things, three key locuses of a cabal. Number one, they're all C's. Company. Back to our first question, we talked about what hangs people up can be skills and experience. The most cost-effective way to get skills and experience is to go join a badass company. We told the story of Mark Zhang, who was our keynote speaker, eight-figure man to sleep. He wanted to get involved with our company by helping us host an event because he saw us as a company who was bringing together people that were having eight-figure outcomes. That's a correct approach. That's how you leverage this cheat code. So company, number two is community. That can also be a location, a group of people centering around a geo. And number three, I think coaching. If you find the right coach, good coaches coach other great players. So 
These could also kind of scale with your level. So at the beginning, the cabals, you're going to want to join our companies. In the middle, it's going to be communities. And maybe at the higher end, it's going to want to be advisors, coaches, boards, stuff like that. So there you go. My two cheat codes, building micro-influence, moving the market, and number two, joining a micro-cabal. I'm going to throw in the third one here. Also starts with a C. It's just simply this, copy. When is the last time, Dan, that you saw a new idea on the internet? For me, almost never. (laughs) There's almost always someone that did something first or it's some version of something else. Or it's a combination of a bunch of different ideas that are pulled together from other resources. And this is it's just as simple. Like I think a lot of people sit down and they try and be really smart about the way that they're going to approach business. And this is going to be this great new idea. And this is something that hasn't existed before. That's the worst idea. The best idea is figure out what's already working in the market. Hopefully it's a big market. And then figure out how you personally, with your skill set, can do it better, especially in the early days. Because it really depends on you in the early days. And you have to be pretty honest with yourself about like what you can achieve and like what your skills are and like how you're going to overcome the difficulties that these people are having. You have to be pretty honest about where you're at because a lot of the conclusions that these companies have come to has been over a series of years or months. And they've kind of gotten to this place where they're humming along, but the decisions are going to be different than your decisions as you're just starting out new and early yeah. now. Well, it's really dangerous advice. So I want to underline, do not copy somebody's business. Do not copy somebody's landing page. Do not copy somebody's code base ever, 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 ever. It's horrible for two reasons. Number one, it's horrible morally. You do not want to live with yourself as a copier. Number two, it's horrible strategically because you're copying the end result, not the process. And I want to underline that. What Ian's suggesting here is that you hang around with people, you see the industry, And you copy the ways they did things. You copy the approach. You mimic. You model it. You recreate it in your own fashion and way. So maybe we need to come up with a a term that's less incendiary there. Sure. Yeah, it's just because it started with the C. But, you know, know, there's all these like new AI tools coming out, right? It's like uh, design your living room with AI. It's just by the push of a button. You know what? You know who used to do that? Interior designers. This isn't a new idea that you can design your living room. What's new here is that there's new tools, right? There's no new ideas. Sorry. It's kind of a (laughs) letdown, right? To hear that we're not special and there's no new ideas. But every single business is built on somebody else's business or somebody else's idea. So the cheat code here is really just don't try and invent a wheel again. I know it's appealing to try and be the first to do something, but... If your goal is freedom, if it's lifestyle, if it's a big business, if it's solving interesting problems, most of the time you're solving old problems. Or standing on the shoulder of giants, sometimes when you see a new idea, it's a nugget of something else. I'm going to take a complete tangent here, super into Van Halen all of a sudden. I don't know what it is. I think it's because I'm 42. Nice. And I'm like, I got to recapture something. Van Halen's the path to do it. Now the cutoff jean shorts are making more sense to me. Continue. (laughs) Eddie Van Halen, who was the leader of this incredible assemblage of talent, is known in the guitar world as a true innovator, a true person who brought new ideas to the table. And he actually shared in a recent interview, rest in peace, where he got his idea. Him and his brother used to sneak in and watch the greatest band of all time in LA. The greatest band of all time. Ian, I'll give you, put you on the spot. 
give you an opportunity to guess. If you're wrong, it's fine. I don't expect people to know this. In LA, uh, Led Zeppelin, perhaps? Led Zeppelin, correct. See All right. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Free mushroom tea for the boss man. <laughs> um, <laughs> culinary mushrooms. But he was watching Jimmy Page do that move where he moves his fingers on the neck and sounds come out, but his right hand was like waving to the crowd and like this rock pose that we know, you know, it's a rock pose, but yet notes were being fretted because at the time the electric guitar relatively new, turns out you don't need to strum it to get a note. Just the combination of a jacked up amplifier and a guitar will make a note. Young Eddie Van Halen sees this and says, wait a second, I got a free hand. And then all of a sudden starts the tapping revolution. So Eddie Van Halen starts tapping the guitar, gets David Lee Roth involved, develops the second greatest rock band of all time. So there you go. There are still some new ideas the, out there. Still rock band. <laughs> but it's just need one little new idea. One little new idea. There are some new ideas out there, but it just goes to show how infrequently they come up. Yes. <laughs> uh, I love this point, though, actually. Typically, the way to copy is not to be like, I'm going to take that one little thing and then build my whole new thing, which is rather to say, I'm going to do what they did, but I'm going to do it my way. And here's my on-ramp. And for Eddie Van Halen, he ended up did build the Led Zeppelin of his generation, the band that was so weird that no other bands like it. And his on-ramp was that guitar style. And then they did it in their way. And so in some ways, Van Halen is a copy of Led Zeppelin. But yeah, they're not nothing, you know what I mean? Like they're completely different products in the end of the day. And that feels like the real spirit of what you're talking about. All right. So glad we really got to Van Halen. Nice. Um, yeah. Well, that worked out for you. Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. And that's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. All right, next question. What advice would you give someone who exited for a decent amount of FU money and are finding it difficult to maintain the hunger, drive, energy to continually strive for success in the next business? The classic, I got the FU money and now I'm feeling pretty unmotivated. Just to give me a little bit of definition here. Like, What's the difference between FU money and uh, we talk about freedom line money? Yeah, freedom line money. Freedom line is the line that you need to shelve financial questions for a lifetime. And it really depends on what your questions are as to whether or not you can shelve them at different levels. So for a lot of us, it's 10 million. But like we said, if you like to ski big hills, it might be 50 million. Like what? I don't want to go to the DMV anymore. Like that freedom line. I saw a famous person doing this the, the other DM, day. That freedom line. If it's you, pretty if high, you right? Crack that code and make like net jets for the DMV. <laughs> 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 All right, I got to ratchet it back. That can't be a goal anymore. <laughs> Dude, that's a kind of a, a blistering ambition you don't see very often. Well, I just put it out there on my uh, spirit board or whatever it was, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. Ian's Pinterest? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my freedom line board. Yeah. <laughs> At the top was just this like, guy, don't go to the DMV anymore. This guy, you just like driving past the DMV. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so Freedom Line is that line at which financial questions get shelved. Still got to go to the DMV, but that's life. You're flying private to Aspen. FU money is a little bit different, which is FU money is actually a window. There's a top limit to FU money because at a certain point, you have so much money that you got to start effing with people again. And FU money is really about when you, you don't need to listen. FU money is really the concept of anybody comes up to you and asks you for something, you can be like, yeah, yeah, I'm not really in for that. I'm not really down for that. I'm doing my own thing. I have a, a fundamental dignity of behavior, a freedom of location, time, and money. At a certain point, you get so much money that maybe governments, powerful individuals, whatever, start to hit you up again for some of that money. So there's a few money, a little bit more subtle of a concept. <laughs> Got it. So a couple of years ago, I rode my motorcycle from Crested Butte to Aspen over a big mountain. Didn't have to answer any emails or phone calls on the way. That's FU money. Taking the yeah. jet to Aspen, that's freedom. That's mind freedom mind money. money. That's Got right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Having helicopter assistance on your, like, but you're not even in the helicopter. It's just there in case something happens. <laughs> uh, here's the thing. I mean, one of the things about FU money, I think, is people get the money, but they don't get the FU. They don't get the FU part because a lot of the reason. We say we want freedom, but then we start to benchmark ourselves to a new crowd, a new kind of groupthink, a new kind of concern about the Joneses. Am I building the right kind of business? Is it big enough? If this, that, and the other. A new kind of competition and comparison. And so I think the concept of FU money is just getting out of that game and figuring out what your game is. And I think that in some ways is harder. And that problem doesn't get solved just because you exited a business necessarily. So what I would encourage people in this kind of despair where they feel like, oh, well, man, I kind of underestimated how hard it is to build a new business and I've been struggling with it and nothing that I'm starting now looks anywhere close to what I used to have is I think you got to take your power back in that situation and be willing to be shameless, be willing to do something that looks dumb, be willing to fail a few times to try and own it. Because to me, it's sort of sad if you lose the pleasure in that of being able to do a project that's fun and that fails. And it's a shame if having a successful exit and having previously had a successful business takes that away from you. So if anybody needs to hear this message, putting it out there, I understand where you're at. I think Ian and I have both felt that way in the past. And it's really fun just to get back that initial sense of excitement that got us into the game in the first place, which is we want to do our own thing. And that means you're going to fail. And it's not like capital F fail. You're good. You've had the incredible outcome and don't let that rob you of your opportunity to have fun in the future and, and do projects that are going to fail and some are going to work out. Well, one question I have about this, Dan, I don't know if it has to be like uh, after you exit your business. So this concept of like having fun and like already achieving FU money and being like in your business, how do you think that works? Because here's the idea basically is like, I'm going to exit my business. So like I have like more free time, and like I get to work on the projects I want to do. And like I can't really see a way to do that within my business right now. But mm. I'm going to exit and then I'm going to have all this time and freedom and money. And then I can kind of pursue these other things. So wouldn't a better idea be like, how can I figure out a way to do the skunk works in my business? Have my business operating, throwing off great cash flow, not have to exit it for like a multiple that I don't like, and then be able to pursue these ideas? I think that would be ideal. I think the sticking point there is finding a successor. 
and finding someone that you trust to run the business. One of our coaches once asked us, what's your bench look like? After you get done with the opening seven minutes of the game, who you let, who's coming in? Who's coming in to, to maintain the lead? And who's your second unit? And I think that's a, a tough question for founders to ask for a variety of reasons. There's a pervasive belief amongst bootstrap founders that not only would it be extremely difficult to replace themselves in their business, but that nobody would want to do it. Mm. And in fact, in the past few weeks, a couple stories have come across our desk of people shocked that they found somebody. Like that's the emotion. Like I can't believe, I thought I would have to give somebody 25% of the company or 50% of the company and I would have to bring them tea on the hour just to keep them around. And, and then the realization is like, oh, they just wanted a great job and I actually have one and here it is. There's something about that replacing yourself that it's almost that point you made earlier, Ian, which is, this isn't that new. It's a good job. People want a good job. Don't overcomplicate it. You build a business. The person that works for you gets to have flexible hours. They get to live where they want. They get to work in a small company with motivated teammates. It's fun. It's an opportunity. They get to work directly with you. I mean, it's a good job. Good jobs are good. Don't overcomplicate it. <laughs> Someone can run your company. Uh, yeah, I think it's one of the advantages that we have just in terms of like owning a recruiting company and getting to see so many good candidates come through the door yeah. every week. It's like, guys, there's so many talented people out there. Like you just have to be willing to hire them. Yeah. To be fair, there was like a 14 month period where everybody was remote. And so it was genuinely like a little bit of a curveball there. Yeah. And now it's back to like, hey, if you're listening to this pod and you're building a business, the, the positions that you're building in your companies are qualitatively different than what traditional companies are offering. And so it's still an excellent opportunity. There's tons of people out there who want to work with you and take over your role. So I agree with you, Ian. Back to your point. Yeah, build your bench. Build your successor. Build a narrative and a story around what that's going to look like. Start training that person and do your skunk works on your platform. It's one of the biggest takeaways we got in our research for our book, Before the Exit is that people miss the platform and the opportunity, but they haven't been able to successfully replace themselves in their company. Nowadays, I think this is an increasingly doable thing. More and more people want these jobs. You can find someone to take over. We have multiple listeners of this show that have done this in just the past few weeks. It's doable for you. Um, and I think that's probably a better strategy than taking the big cash nut and completely selling the company. Yeah, it's like selling any asset. The timing a lot of times does matter. You know, the last year would not have been a great time to sell your business, but maybe emotionally and mentally, like you weren't willing to like stick it out. Mm -hmm. And so you sold it because you just kind of had enough. But that's not really the best financial decision you can make. Perhaps you could find somebody and still get what you want. All right, I'm going to reach back into the, the large canvas metaphorical mailbag. Next question. What details have you noticed about the members that seem to get the most out of communities like the DC? Business-wise, friendship-wise, wealth-wise. A couple quick hitters here. The first off is people who really care about business. People who are really passionate about the process of business, not the outcomes, number one. Number two, if you can become like the guy or the gal for something in a community, like a trusted source that the other members realize that you have their interests at heart first, that really works. It really works. 
you know, Ian's a guy who you can ask about any car purchase you're going to make. Ian's a guy that you can ask about any M&A transaction because he's like seen the books of a lot of these things and he's not invested in any one way or another. And people just start coming to you and you just get these kinds of interactions that are not only really, really fun, but tend to be exciting and profitable down the line too, because good things happen when good people get together. Please, by the way, call me when you're considering your next Ferrari, because I have a lot of opinions about that. People do. Uh, it's yeah, not even do. a joke, which is crazy. Like, I want to buy a Ferrari. I better talk to Ian. <laughs> I love that. It's something that I'm passionate about and something that I know a decent amount about. But getting back to this idea of uh, being passionate about business, Dan, a lot of us get into business for various reasons. One is like, I can't have a job anymore. I want to be in control of my own destiny. And they start these businesses and then they run them. And how do you know if someone is actually passionate about business? Like it's one thing to own a business, but then like what differentiates people that own a business and then are like passionate about business? Yeah, it's hard to triangulate how to figure out because there's two kinds of passion for business. There's the freak naturals, the hustlers from another mother, the people that have zero choice in the matter, right? You just come out trying to sell what's in your pockets. If you can't sell that, you'll sell the next thing. If you can't do that, you'll build the next business model. Whatever your representation is for that. I think there's a whole other group of founders who are conditional founders, who maybe they got in the game for another reason, like a common one that comes up a lot is they want to relocate to be around a partner. And there's no good remote jobs. And so I got to start another, my own cash flow. So now I'm kind of a conditional founder. I'm really interested in the benefits, but... Maybe it's not in my DNA to hustle on a daily basis. I think that's a trickier challenge if you're a conditional hustler. In some ways, it can be a blessing. It's not all good being on the natural side because you can switch it off. You can say, I'm going to be professional about it. I can think of a handful of conditional hustlers in my head who have great multi-seven-figure businesses because they treat it like a professional occupation. Yeah, They don't treat it like an identity. Yeah. They show up to work. They figure out the strategic margin. Shit. They don't get all twisted up in their head about it's how good they are at it or whatever. They just do it well. They kick ass and make a bunch of money. They shut it off at five and hang out with their partner. So there's pros and cons to everything. But if you're a conditional hustler and you're finding motivation a problem, I've seen people shake it up, shake it up, switch it up, do something new. I think out there for everybody is a business that captures what you love doing and what the market values. I think I'm a believer in that nexus that you can find it if you keep mixing it up. I've just seen too many people find it. And I think partially hanging around communities where other people are really passionate about it and observing that, that can be a great way to do it. It's just to see what other people are up to, how they've arrived there. And maybe you can find that for yourself. A couple more questions to get to here, Ian. How has the community space changed since you started? It hasn't. I would just say this. I don't think the community space has changed. No new ideas. I think people are just talking about it in threads on Twitter now. I think that's what's <laughs> changed. Here's what's changed. Here's what's changed. The broke digital nomads who moved to Bali in 2014, they're rich now. That's what's changed. And they're a business opportunity. People who built online businesses are a business opportunity. I want to say something else about the broke digital nomads who moved to Bali in 2014 because we were there hanging out with them. There's two different kinds of people. There's people who are going on a yoga retreat and then there's people who are trying to build incredible businesses, right? Guess where they live now? 
I got a list. I got a list of where people live that listen to this podcast. London, Austin, Sydney, New York, Lisbon, Los Angeles, Singapore, Bangkok, Miami, Barcelona, Toronto, Ho Chi Minh City, Melbourne, Mexico City, Brisbane, Denver, Berlin, Chicago, Amsterdam, PDC, Playa del Carmen, San Diego, Phoenix, San Francisco, Montreal. Top 25 cities. Sounds like a bunch of rich people to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a bunch of rich people to me. So here's back to the theme of what we're talking about is nothing's changed. The reason people became digital nomads is because they were looking at a path to wealth because they didn't go to an Ivy League school necessarily, because they didn't get to work for a top five accounting or consulting firm, because there wasn't a clear path to wealth. They thought they might find it in Bali. They thought they might find it at a conference. They thought they might find it in an FBA business or in a blog. And you know what? A lot of them found it and now they need a community. And now, and, and that's what's changed is the model's the same, but the types of people that want to get together, maybe those demographics have been shuffled. And so that's how I see the community space changing is there's always been entrepreneurship groups, but just the types of businesses that they're pulling together. Another kind of demographic shift we're seeing is this kind of hold co boomer thing, sweaty startup thing, which is like, hey, what are we going to do with all these laundromats? Basically, we went to Bali. We did the Amazon thing. We exited. We've got cash reserves. We've got great margins. What about the assets that have maybe thinner margins, but that indeed have more regulatory benefits and that are more stable and solid? Maybe we'll put some of the profits back into that. Bam, you got a new community demographic there. So it's interesting to see the community demographics reshuffle, but in terms of community itself, we can go back through the history and see tons and tons of communities like this. So I don't think too, too much has changed there. I'd say one of the things though that's changed, Dan, is definitely like uh, over time, like these communities have gotten more niche because you can. Before it was like, oh, you might be like a part of the Rotary Club and there's a bunch of people and dipshits in there that you didn't really like, but that was like your community. Now it's like really possible to have a community with just the people that you like, which is interesting. Thanks to the internet. So that's one thing that's definitely changed. Yeah, you look at the scale of these things, you wonder. I, my guess is it'll polarize. You look at like EO with 18,000 members. These are like the next gen. You look at things like YPO and Vistage with also high membership counts. Are those things going to get more subtle and granular in terms of niche in the future? You're really just going to want to be a part of an 18,000 entrepreneur network. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I think you're probably right there, though. Things will get a little bit more niche. Speaking of which... The next question, we did put these in order, but these are actual questions. What's next for the DC? Is pretty straightforward. In fact, very clear. We are scaling experiences, events, spaces for our most ambitious members. And for our members who are early on in their journey, who want to get to higher heights, like we said at the top, we believe it makes sense to try and build a seven, multi-seven figure, eight figure business, not just to hang out at six, if you want to hang out at six, no judgment. But our members are very clear. They want us to build spaces for those of them that want to grow. And so that's the future of the DC. All right, Ian, just a few more questions. If you could unlock one feature to add to your personality to make you a better entrepreneur, what would it be? It's like in Mario, you know, when you jump up, you punch the block and a mushroom comes out. Mm. What power does that mushroom unlock? Was it a culinary mushroom? What was with the mushrooms, actually? 
I never questioned it. <laughs> Why is Mario eating so many mushrooms? Uh, bro, it's Japanese, man. I mean, there's a, a lot of weird things going on. And we need to appreciate them for that. <laughs> this uh, inspired a generation. Yeah, inspired a generation of kids to realize that eating mushrooms gives you special powers. Exactly. It's something that a lot of listeners of this show believe. Well, you know, I'm hearing more and more people these days coming to work microdosing. So I think it's just one of those things you got to settle in and just get with the time, Stan. So if I show up here with some capsules, don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the question is, if you could add one power-up feature to, to yourself or any other entrepreneur, what's that secret feature that that mushroom's going to unlock that would help you be better as an entrepreneur or anybody else for that matter? This is a genuine question. I'll say for me, I want to eat that mushroom and be fearless and shameless, especially about societal norms to a degree. I don't want to cross any real boundaries. I'm talking about that shame that is inside of your head that doesn't make you want to look like an idiot, that's worried about stepping out of line, hurting some feelings, doing something that makes you look stupid. Get rid of that. Have a little shamelessness. And the second piece I would combine with that just like in the Mario game, no speed limit. You want to run at an incredibly fast rate. I think there's a superpower in founders who see the idea. And yes, sustainability is a question, but let's put that off to another day. Who can clear the plate for 90 days, 180 days, and completely change their life, completely get something out into the world and see how it changes their life. You know, I talked to Nathan Barry last week who founded ConvertKit, one of the most case-studied businesses in our space because their ARR is incredible and he's public about it. He's built an amazing business. And what he said to me was there was a moment in his life where he decided he was going to write 1,000 words a day, every single day, no matter what. And he did it for over a year. And he said that was the moment. That was the moment that he knew he was going to make it, that his career pivoted on because he was able to build himself an audience. He was able to get products out into the marketplace. And it ultimately all led to him being able to build one of the better businesses of our entrepreneurial class, if you want to say. And I think that those moments, when you see an opportunity and you seize it without shame, without fear, and without a speed limit, that is the entrepreneurial culinary mushroom superpower. I see people like Nathan around me running these experiments, Dan, and I would say that that would be something that I would want to unlock as well, which is like the discipline to sit down every day and do that. When I see friends doing this stuff, I'm like, oh, that's dumb. In the end, like maybe they abandon the project or whatever, but they always learn something from it. It always leads to something else, you know, that type of discipline. I think it's like really easy for me, especially I'll speak for myself, to like come to my desk and like do a bunch of things and maybe push the ball forward and even have some like great ideas. But like the discipline to say like, I'm going to do this one thing every day for 30 days or a year. That's really hard for me to do. Nate did mention that the experiment ended when he came down with shingles because he was so exhausted. <laughs> he's so burnt out. <laughs> he's completely burnt out. <laughs> but there is a confidence that he gained from that that I think is inspiring and definitely a superpower. Yeah, so you remember Greg Mercer several years ago at DCBKK, Greg Mercer of Jungle Scout. Jungle Scout is like a product discovery tool on Amazon. 
gave a talk at DC. And, and I will yeah. say, can I just mention another best in class case study company? They had a brilliant, brilliant exit. I mean, yeah. His story also began in shingles from him working <laughs> so hard. So maybe there's something to be learned here. Like if you're not getting shingles, you're not working hard enough. Could that be it? If you're not getting shingles, you're not working hard enough. That's a t-shirt. Every company begins and ends as a t-shirt company, as, our, as should ours. So there you go. If you're not getting shingles, you're not working hard enough. I'm a true believer in this philosophy. Oh, yeah. It's one thing to get shingles when you're older. It's another thing to get it in your 20s. Like, you got to be just doing something really right or wrong. At that I don't point. even know what shingles is. I just know. <laughs> I just know I've never worked hard enough to get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is your definition of an entrepreneur? A genuine question. What is your definition of an entrepreneur? Is it somebody who gets shingles? Is it somebody who works himself? I'll say this. I've always loved this definition of an entrepreneur because I, I read it somewhere. It was French. It's a French book. I don't even know the source. But it's essentially this. That's the irony, by the way, of the word, is that it's French. It is. It I'll is just, French. I'll just leave that there. <laughs> well, the, it's also part of the reason I think English has become the de facto language of entrepreneurship globally because it's willing to take a few new words in every now and then. The French language, stingy, stingy with their dictionary. Are you talking about like words like mid and sus? Yeah. Things like that? All right. Yeah. The French are sus when it comes to their dictionary allowances. Entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. Great, great spot though. Great spot to spend the spoils, as they say. What is an entrepreneur? Hustler, someone who gets shingles. Here's my favorite definition of all time, Ian. It essentially has to do with just seeing value. I think there's a difference between entrepreneurship and someone who just runs a business. An operator of a business, of course, there's crossover. The operator looks at the P&L, makes the budget, puts the money around, pays the people, gets the things done. That's the operator. Now, both of us are a mix of everything, right? But what's that entrepreneurship part? For me, it's seeing value that isn't captured on the P&L and then finding a way to communicate that value to other people. A small way this happens. We told the example of you host an event, right? And you're like, you know what would make this event more valuable is a motor vehicle on the stage. Oh yeah. In everybody's heads, this is an $800 event. It becomes an $815 event if you put the motor vehicle on the stage. That's, That's right. essentially entrepreneurship. And then trying to harvest the $15, I see that is basically entrepreneurship is you see things that are valuable in the world, hey, everybody's drinking non-alcoholic beer in Barcelona, Spain. Why aren't they drinking non-alcoholic beer in Austin, Texas? And you know the thing that's happening in Spain that's a little bit illegible is that it's actually being drunk by the athletes, the endurance sports athletes, extremely popular, also extremely popular in America. So when I take that value and try to express it to Americans, I'll call the brand athletic brewing. So it's very clear to them that it's not about I'm worried about alcoholism, but I'm actually want to hydrate with a great beverage. It's athletic brewing. And now it's become an incredible brand success here in America because an entrepreneur saw value in something and effectively communicated it to a new group of people. That to me is the core skill set of entrepreneurship. All right. Final question. Genuine question. How many cars does Ian now own? This, this can't be a real question. This is a real question? Real question. All yeah, right. Yeah, it's a real question. Straight uh, 
It's a double digit number. Okay, we'll start there. And then th- what's really important here is that I am announcing my retirement from the flipping business. That's right. You heard it here first on the TMBA podcast. You're I'm retiring. no longer flipping cars for profit uh-huh. because our business honestly has become so damn good that I have no time for the flipping. So I will stick with what I have. And maybe when we reach another kind of uh, plateau in our business or some other interesting number, I will start to level up my collection. And uh, that's not today. The reason I bring it up is because I just always want to say the word entrepreneur mobile. <laughs> and uh, I just want to make sure that we just still think it's cool to buy cars that we can afford in cash. That's right. Even if those cars aren't cool, because you know what's cool? A car that you paid for in cash, that means more money is going into your business. That's going to give you long-term freedom. That's uh, one of my favorite themes here on the show, which is like just finding ways. Because we go back to the question about FU money and it's like you got the money, but not the FU because you're still worried about what other people might think. We talked about shamelessness as a superpower. It's like driving a car that looks like that's a superpower. Who cares? Who cares? And it's just one example of don't let this stuff hold you back from doing what you want to do with your life every day. That's right. That's why I always love this thing of the entrepreneur mobile. It's like, yeah, man, who cares if you have a cool car? Who actually cares? Does your your mom care? Does your best friend care that you have a cool car? Yeah, I actually care. I actually care. I'd like to. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty cool that you have a cool car, man. (laughs) Well, the the same thing can be said about your house, about your clothes, about the vacations that you take, especially early on, right? Very important that you don't do anything that would sacrifice your chances of becoming a success. There you go. Keep it cheap. Keep it in cash. Put that time and energy into your business. That's where the real rewards will come from. That's it. Thanks for your questions. We appreciate them. Y'all know our email addresses. It's Dan and Ian at TropicalMBA.com. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week. See you, Ian. See you later. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.